It is not uncommon in our day and age to hear about unsuspecting people who are cheated out of something of great value to them. Sometimes gullible, and I don't use that term in a derogatory manner, but gullible or innocent folks are deceived by dishonest people into signing away their homes or signing away their property or giving away their money, signing away their life savings account, whatever it may be. However, the greatest deception that has ever been accomplished took place thousands of years ago. It all began back in the book of Genesis. God created Adam and gave him the privilege of ruling over this marvelous creation. Adam and Eve had this wondrous prerogative and privilege. The world was going to be governed by a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government in which God rules through his chosen representative. Adam was that representative. But Satan took the form of a serpent and deceived Eve. He talked her into rebelling against God and Adam went along with her. As a result of that tragic decision, everything changed. Everything changed. Number one, the theocracy was lost. No longer would this world be ruled by God through his chosen representative. In fact, Adam and Eve joined Satan in his revolt. Number two, Satan has usurped the rule of the world. Adam basically gave it to him. Adam handed it over to Satan. This is indicated in Luke 4, 6, and in many places where Satan is given the title in the New Testament, the title, the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, etc. Number three, God placed all of nature under a curse. Genesis 3 indicates this, as well as Romans 8. Everything has changed from God's original design. Mankind is in revolt and rebellion. Satan rules this world. And God's beautiful creation is under a curse. But the day is coming when all of this will be reversed. The day is coming when man's rebellion and Satan's rule will be undone. The earth will be reclaimed by its creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. This process will begin in the future seven-year tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the Lord Jesus receive a seven-sealed scroll from God the Father. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. The Lord Jesus is the only one worthy to take it and open its seals. Every time he breaks one of those seals, a judgment hits the earth to crush man's rebellion and to undo Satan's hold on the earth. The seven seal judgments are followed by seven trumpet judgments. These are even more intense than the seal judgments, and their purpose is the same, to crush man's rebellion and to undo Satan's hold on the earth. Now, we've already considered five of the trumpet judgments in this present series. In this message, we come to the sixth trumpet judgment. But before we turn to Revelation chapter 9 to look at that 
particular judgment. Let's begin in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Please turn with me to the fourth book of the New Testament, same human author as the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, in his Gospel account, chapter 8. The reason why I want us to begin here is because in this chapter, our Lord Jesus Christ makes a statement which gives us insight into the character of God's enemy and our enemy, Satan. Now, let me give you the background since we're jumping into the middle of a story. In this chapter, the Lord Jesus is in a confrontation with some of the Jewish leaders of his day. These Jewish leaders thought they were automatically okay with God simply because of their nationality as Jews. They thought that gave them an automatic in, an automatic pass. But Jesus makes it clear that such is not the case. The issue with God is their heart, not their nationality. Only the heart that is truly surrendered to the Lord Jesus is acceptable in the sight of God. The externals don't mean a thing. So we pick up the story in verse 37 where Jesus says to this group of Jewish leaders, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The Greek word used here has the idea of making no progress. You could almost translate or paraphrase this, my word makes no progress in you. That was the real issue. That's why back in verse 31, Jesus called for them to allow his word to abide in them. They were not allowing his word to make progress in them or to take root in them. Jesus talked about this in his parable of the sower when he described the seed sown among thorns. Matthew 13, 22 says, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul said about the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 when he wrote these words, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. That's what Jesus was calling for here in John 8 verse 31. But unfortunately these Jewish people weren't willing to allow his words to make any progress in their lives. And when they rejected his word, they were at the same time rejecting the Father. So he says to them in verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. Now I personally feel at this point, these religious leaders interrupted Jesus right in the middle of what he was about to say. Let me show you what I mean, why I say that. Verse 38 ends with Jesus saying, You do what you have seen with your father. Verse 41 begins with the statement, You do the deeds of your father. And finally, Jesus finishes his thought in verse 44, where he says to them, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
Now, I don't know if they knew what he was going to say in verse 38 when he finally concludes it in verse 44 by saying, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. I don't know if they realized where Jesus was going, but you get the impression that they kept interrupting him until you get to verse 44. Whether they were interrupting him or not, in verse 38, Jesus still made one point very clear. Their father and his father were not one and the same. And they got that message. They understood that. Notice verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. The works of Abraham were faith and obedience. But neither of those elements were present in their lives. They weren't willing to put their faith in Jesus. And as a result, they were altogether disobedient to God. Verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. By the way, they have been trying to kill Jesus ever since chapter 5, where Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and then backed up his right to do that by claiming equality with God. But Abraham would have never had that kind of murderous attitude toward the messenger of God. Did you notice the progression in this verse, or maybe I should say the digression in this verse? Watch this. You seek to kill me. That's being murderous. A man who has told you the truth. That's being ludicrous. Which I heard from God. That's being blasphemous. They went the full scale downward. And in verse 41, Jesus said, You do the deeds of your father. And again, I feel they interrupt him at this point. They said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. The we in this verse is emphatic in the original. We are not born of fornication. They were implying that he was. They were casting aspersions on the story of the virgin birth. That was a story that was known in that that culture in that day, in the first century. So they are basically accusing Jesus of being a bastard child. In fact, Moffat translates this phrase, we are not bastards. And they were implying that Jesus was. But Jesus ignores their ugliness and speaks to their claim of having God as their father. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. In the original language, both of the opening phrases in this verse expect a negative answer or imply a negative connotation. In other words, Jesus was saying this, If God were your father, but he isn't, you would love me, but you don't. They didn't really love Jesus because they really didn't love God. They claimed to love God, and maybe even, they even convinced themselves they loved God, but they didn't really love God. Verse 43, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. They were completely unable to understand what Jesus was saying to them. It's as if he was speaking a foreign language to them. But understand, their problem wasn't intellectual stupidity. It was rather spiritual hard-heartedness. 
You see, if a man hardens his heart against the Word of God long enough, eventually he won't even be able to hear it because he'll be spiritually deaf. And that's where these Jewish leaders were at. So Jesus is trying to get through to them with this strong, biting language in this confrontation. And that brings us to the statement that I want us to use as a springboard to our text in Revelation chapter 9, verse 44. Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus simply points out the truth of the old saying, like father, like son. Satan is a murderer, beloved. Satan is a murderer, and watch this. He would kill everyone on the face of the earth, and certainly every believer, if God were to allow it. Do you want to hear something shocking? God is going to allow it in great measure during the future tribulation period. That's what our text is all about in Revelation chapter 9. So let's turn there as we resume our consideration of the ninth chapter of the book of Revelation. Please follow along as I read our text, which is verses 13 through 21. Revelation chapter 9. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four, great, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. As you can see from reading through this passage, this is the sixth trumpet judgment. Trumpet judgment number one, the green vegetation of the earth will be struck. Trumpet judgment number two, the seas will be struck. Trumpet judgment number three, the fresh waters will be struck. Trumpet judgment number four, the luminary bodies in the sky will be struck. Trumpet judgment number five, demons will be released from the pit to torment mankind for five agonizing months. And now we come to trumpet judgment number six. Notice how John introduces it. Verse 13, he says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice 
from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. The golden altar of incense in the temple had four horns, one on each corner. It was a place where incense was burned to symbolize prayers ascending to God for mercy. For mercy. But back in chapter 6, we saw some martyred believers under the altar, and they were praying not for mercy, but for vengeance. Chapter 6, verse 9, John says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. This, in chapter 6, is a prayer for vengeance. Their prayers for vengeance are now being answered in chapter 9. They're basically told here in chapter 6, be patient, be patient. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. He will right the wrongs. He will carry out justice, equity, vengeance, but you need to be patient. And in chapter 9, their prayers are being answered. Let's go back to chapter 9. So verse 14, this voice that John heard was saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Since the word of God never refers to God's holy angels being bound, it is safe to assume that these four angels are evil angels. Remember, demons are angels. Jesus even referred to them as that when he says in Matthew 25 that hell was created for the devil and his angels. We usually refer to uh, Satan's hosts as demons, but it is appropriate to call them angels. They are fallen angels, evil angels. So these four angels are demons. Four powerful, high-ranking demons, and they have been bound at the great river Euphrates. Why the Euphrates River? What is the significance of that, and where is it anyway? Its headwaters are in the mountains of Armenia, and it joins the Tigris in lower Babylon, the two rivers combining for a length of 1,800 miles. It separated Israel from her two chief enemies, Assyria and Babylon. The area beyond the Euphrates to the east is traditionally the source from which enemy attacks came against Israel. God has bound four powerful demons in that area, but they will be released at this moment to attack the earth. Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Notice the phrase, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year. What a statement of God's sovereignty. This event is happening at the exact time of God's plan. When this trumpet judgment hits the earth, it will look like things are out of control. But they're not out of control. They are under the sovereign control of God, and they are happening at the exact moment of His divine plan. 
This will not happen one second sooner or one second later than God has sovereignly planned. The exact right time, four powerful demons will be released, and the result is that one-third of mankind on planet Earth will die. You might remember that back in chapter 6, when the fourth seal was broken, one-fourth of the Earth's population died. How many will that be? Well, obviously it depends on when this happens, whatever the population is of the earth at that time. On October 31st, 2011, the population reached 7 billion people on planet earth. The official date of 7 billion people. So when the fourth seal is broken, unless there's a massive population decrease between now and whenever this happens, over 1.5 billion people will die. Close to 2 billion. That leaves close to 5 billion people left on the earth. When this sixth trumpet blows and these demons are released, another 1.5 billion people will die. That means that the combination of the fourth seal judgment and the sixth trumpet judgment using population figures from today will result in three and a half billion people dying. That's half the world's present population. Just burying all those people is going to be a massive task. You might be asking yourself the question, how are these four demons going to kill one and a half billion people? The answer is that they are going to have a huge army of demons under their command. Verse 16 says, Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Can you imagine this, beloved? There are already millions of demons free to wreak havoc on the earth right now. That's what Ephesians 6 tells us, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, authorities, rulers. Those terms are used in New Testament letters clearly to refer to the spirit world, either holy angels or evil angels, demons. So we are told in Ephesians 6 that there are all of these hosts of demons free to wreak havoc on the earth. In addition... When the fifth trumpet is sounded, there will be millions more released from the pit to torment people for five months, as we saw last week. Now, when the sixth trumpet is sounded, 200 million more demons will be released. If you add all those up, which is impossible, there will be hundreds of millions of demons roaming around during the tribulation period to do whatever they can do to those living on the earth. And these demons of the sixth trumpet judgment won't merely torment people, as will the demons of the fifth trumpet judgment. These demons will kill people. They will kill, again using today's census population figures, over one and a half billion people. What will their their weapons be? Verse 17 
And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. How will these demons kill people? With fire, smoke, and brimstone. Some commentators see this as a description of modern military equipment and weapons of destruction. That is certainly possible. It's a very plausible explanation of this. If John saw modern military equipment and weapons of destruction in this vision, he would have no idea what he was looking at. And so he would have described it this way. Therefore, his description would be similar to this. So that is a distinct possibility. However, I lean toward the view that John is actually describing demons of death. The verse says that the heads of these horse-looking demons were like the heads of lions. That refers to their cruelty, their destruction, and their ferocity. The breastplates of the riders will be the colors often associated with fire and brimstone. Notice the three colors, fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. But the most significant part of the description of these demons is the last phrase of this verse where it says, Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. We know that's the significant issue. How do we know? Because John elaborates on it in the next verse. In verse 18, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. You might remember that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Here it is virtually the same thing. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. Those are the very elements of hell itself. The lake of fire. Evidently, these demons of death will spew fire, smoke, and brimstone out of their mouths and thereby kill people. In fact, lest we be inclined to disbelieve this, John repeats his earlier statement. He repeats it. That one-third of the earth dwellers will be killed when this judgment hits. Again, with today's figures, that's over one and a half billion people. The first woe brought torment in verses 1 through 12. The second woe brings death. The demons of death kill with their mouths. But they're not only able to devastate by using their mouths, they can also severely hurt by using their tails. Verse 19, For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. In other words, these demons can unleash harm in both directions. With their mouths, they can spew out fire, smoke, and brimstone and kill people. With their tails, they strike people like a snake biting its victim and injecting its stinging poison. With their tails, they severely hurt people, and with their mouths, they kill people. It's a terrifying sight. Now, you would think that this would get the attention of the unbelievers dwelling on the earth. 
you would think that this would cause them to fall on their faces in repentance and cry out for God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Wrong. Look at the next verse. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Unfathomable hardness of heart. They will not repent. Even when they see the cataclysmic devastation of fire and brimstone, a prelude of hell itself, they will not repent. They will refuse to repent of their idolatrous religion. By the way, a lot of religion is going to be taking place during the tribulation period. We think of that time as an irreligious time, an anti-religious time. Well, it certainly is going to be a time of anti-Christ against the true Christ. But a lot of religion is going to be taking place during the tribulation period. In fact, so much so that John devotes an entire chapter of the book of Revelation to the destruction of the harlot church of the end times. Revelation chapter 17, entire chapter about the religious system that will be destroyed, judged by God. So a lot of religion will be going on, but most of it is going to be false religion. It's going to be idolatrous religion that people will refuse to let go of even when God unleashes His judgment in this terrifying fashion. In fact, this verse, notice, it says that many will be even, even be worshiping demons. This shows you just how irrational people can be. Think about this. They will be worshiping demons when in fact it will be demons who will be tormenting them, as we saw in verses 1 through 12 last week, and demons who will be killing them, as we see in these verses. What irony. Worshiping demons when it is demons who injure them, hurt them, and kill them. Isn't that mind-boggling? Men and women will be worshiping demons while at the same time being tormented and slaughtered by demons. Amazing irrationality. But this is what love of self and love of sin can lead to ultimately. As John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men love darkness because they love their sin even to the point of holding on to it while it is destroying them. And verse 21 says, And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Four specific sins are mentioned in this verse that mankind will refuse to repent of during the tribulation period. First, murders. Back in chapter 6, when the fourth seal was open, one of the results was death by sword. Remember? The tribulation period is going to begin with a time of peace. The Antichrist will conquer peacefully. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, when they say, peace, peace, then sudden destruction will come upon them. 
So at first it will be a time of peace, but when the fourth seal is open, one of the results is the peace is shattered and then there is death by sword. In other words, people will begin killing one another in an accelerated manner. Murder and anarchy will run rampant. You could see how that would be the case just by reading the book of Revelation with all these things going on. Anarchy in many countries around the world, murder. Furthermore, worldwide abortion will continue, which is the murder of the helpless. And this verse says people will refuse to repent of that. Second, it says sorceries. This word could be translated drugs, depending on the textual word that's here, pharmakai, drugs, sorceries. The two really do go together because oftentimes in magic, sorcery drugs are used for hallucination and so forth. So people will continue to use drugs, maybe partly just to dull their minds to the reality of the atrocities that are going on throughout the earth. That may be their only refuge from the intolerable conditions. They will anesthetize their minds through drugs and will not repent. Third, it says sexual immorality. This is the broadest Greek term for immorality, the broadest of all the Greek terms. And it can be, it's really an umbrella that covers all sexual deviation from God's plan of man and woman in marriage. So it can be used to refer to adultery, living together, premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, pornography, anything, anything that is outside of God's plan for human sexuality. People will continue to engage in all kinds of immorality and all kinds of lewdness. And then fourth, thefts, the very last word of the verse. Runaway looting will be taking place during the tribulation. A society will be in utter chaos, especially when each of the judgments first hits and people are trying to adjust. We've all seen this. We've seen news clips of this. When, when riots break out, whether here in our own country or around the world, that's often one of the first things that people in society do. They take advantage of the chaos and the, the anarchy and all of, all of the uh, trying to, people trying to get their feet, and, and they just begin to steal from people's businesses, people's houses. Thieves will take advantage of the chaos and the anarchy to steal anything and everything they can. So the earth dwellers will refuse to repent of their murders, their sorceries, their immoralities, and their thefts. By making that choice, they seal their eternal destiny. Skip over to chapter 21, over near the end of the book of Revelation. Notice what it says in light of this verse that we just read. Chapter 21, verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, now notice the same terms that are used here that we just saw, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's where they will end up for their refusal to repent. Look at chapter 22. Just so we don't miss it, it's repeated again. Chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters 
and whoever loves and practices a lie. As Jesus said when he was here on the earth, unless you repent, you will perish. You will not only die physically, you will die eternally in the lake of fire. So what should I say in closing? I say this. Repent before your heart gets too hard to repent. Frankly, I don't don't want to assume that everyone present here is a believer. That everyone present here has repented and embraced Jesus Christ. So I say, repent before you're not able to repent. As we close, look with me at Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 2, and I take us to this passage because these words refer specifically to the tribulation period. More than once, more than once, I have heard people say, or heard of people saying, something to this effect. This is not uncommon. People who are around other Christians, they, they've heard about what the Bible has to say about the future, the tribulation period, and they say something to this effect. Well, you know, if I'm here and all this begins to happen, then I'll know it's true and then I will repent. That's a very common response from some unbelievers who have exposure to teaching from Scripture about the end times. I'll just wait and see. You know, I'm not interested in turning to Christ now, but if all of a sudden a bunch of Christians are gone and all of this chaos begins to happen, then I'll repent. I'll know the Bible's real and then I'll repent. Let me show you how dangerous that is. 2 Thessalonians 2. These words refer specifically to the tribulation period. And notice what it says. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one, that's the man we usually refer to as the Antichrist, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Why would they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved, might be saved. Notice, not only did they not receive the truth, they didn't receive the love of the truth. They didn't receive the truth because they didn't love it. They didn't want it, that they might be saved. Now notice, verse 11. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. You see, because they they didn't love the truth, they didn't want the truth, God will send them strong delusion. That they should believe the lie, the lie, that they all might be condemned that they all might be damned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The time will come during the tribulation period when people will not be able to repent because their hearts will be too hard and their minds will be too deceived. So again I say one more time, If you are one of those people in the category of those who say, well, I'll I'll just sort of wait it out. I'll, I'll give it some time to see if this stuff is true. I say to you, repent. Repent now before it's too late to repent. Let's bow together as we close. 
Father, it is a fearsome sight that is described in the text that we've considered in this, in this message. To see such massive death among mankind. 1.5 to 2 billion people, if it's, if it's here in the near future. Unbelievable devastation and destruction. And that isn't even really as fearful to us as what we just read here in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's a fearful thing to hear your word describe a condition of heart with which it's impossible to repent. A hardness of heart, a deceptiveness of mind that makes it impossible to repent. That's scary. That is scarier than reading about demons from the pit or demons from, the, the, from beyond the Euphrates. It, it is scary to think about someone's heart becoming that hard and someone's mind being that deceived. And so we pray, we beseech you, we ask you for anyone, not only anyone here with us, but anyone in our lives, friends, family members, co-workers, people for whom we are burdened to see them come to know Jesus Christ. We pray you would do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary, to open their eyes, open their hearts, open their minds. Use us, if you choose to do so, as vessels or instruments. Use circumstances, use others. Maybe we're just those who are called to plant and others will water. Maybe we don't even really get to plant very much. We just cultivate the soil. Someone else plants, someone else waters. Whatever the case, we, we want to see people's eyes open to the truth. And we want to see your spirit work in their hearts so that they would love the truth because we realize that if they don't love the truth, then they won't want the truth, they won't embrace the truth, and they won't be saved. They'll be damned. And that's true whether they live until and into the tribulation period or whether they die long before that time period hits this earth. It's still the same. And so we ask you humbly, to work in the hearts and lives of friends, family members, loved ones with whom we have shared the gospel or at least begun a conversation or introduced the truth or whatever the level is, we pray that your spirit would stir them because we recognize if he does not, all our efforts are in vain. And so we ask these things in the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior who delivers us from the wrath to come the eternal wrath and the eschatological wrath. He delivers us from wrath. And for that, we are eternally grateful. In his precious name, amen.